Your organisation is alive. You're not a machine, you're a living system. I'm Paul Miller and welcome to The Nature of Work, where we explore the people, practices and organisations who are bringing a new story of work to life. This podcast is based on the book Nature of Work, A New Story of Work for a Living Age, written by myself and Shimrit James and is produced by the Digital Workplace Group. For more information about the Nature of Work book, visit natureofwork.com. I definitely have a tendency to get the giggles when things go wrong. And um, I think running a business for 20 years has sort of taught us that things go wrong all the time and there's absolutely no point in getting in a flap about it. You know, you've got to laugh and keep going, keep calm and carry on. But I, I would say that we're, we are quite calm. I think we've, we've figured out over the years, and most of us have worked together for quite a long time, how to disagree civilly, if that makes sense, or or how to have pretty robust conversations and yet not lose our shit, generally. Our guests today, Shim, are Rosie Brown. Rosie is the co-CEO, not the CEO, but the co-CEO of Cook, which is a frozen ready meals company based in the UK, and it's helped. She's helped the business expand to ninety standalone shops and five hundred concessions. She lives in Kent with her husband, who it says is a stay-at-home dad. She's got three sons. Don't think we're going to have everybody's children each time we do a bio. But um, she started a career in London, had stints in politics, investment banking, and she joined Cook and co-founded it with her brother, who she talks about in the podcast, um, Ed, in 2000. And and Cook's an incredible company. They make frozen meals. Kind of remind me of the sort of meals my mum used to make when I was a teenager. And if she ever went away and left me in the house on my own and assumed that there would be no food, so she would do little kind of meals in, in tinfoil and write on put in oven for 20, for 20 <laughs> minutes on, on, uh, on, on, on something. And I'd probably have to get the neighbour to come in and explain to me how to turn the oven on. Anyway, they sell their brands nationally. And we've also got James Rutter. And James is the chief creative officer for Cook. And it was a great... It was, well, it was an incredible conversation. I mean, what, what, what kind of stayed with you from it, Shim? Do you know what? It was just such a pleasure speaking to them both and hearing a company that kind of lives and breathes the elements that we've spoken about in the book. Um, it's such a, a thriving, real way. Um, and a couple of things really stuck with me. I think the first was just their focus on nourishing relationships and this idea of nourishment as being the driving purpose and at the heart of everything that they do. And there was something that Rosie said right at the end about lots of organizations know how to scale up their products. It's something they do really well. And it's such a, you know, industrial era idea and way of operating. But what she was saying was, not many have yet learned how to scale up relationships. And the way that that seems to run through everything that they do, whether it's 
their relationship with their people, with their the, the idea of food, the idea of their relationship with communities, with the environment. It just seems to, to be at the heart of everything that they do. And that was one thing that really stuck with me. And the other was actually in the, the joking part beforehand where we were having tech problems and you asked them, how did you manage to stay so calm? And the fact that they said, it's just who we are and we know that mm. stuff will go wrong. And mm. we as leaders need to have the emotional, be able to regulate our emotional well-being to show people that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to not get in a flap about it. Things will come good as long as we come together. They're two things that really really resonated with me i think um yeah and 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 i don't know why it's coming into my mind but when when you see a a a group of ants and they you know they're kind of navigating between one piece of wood and you know some kind of bricks and they're sort of falling over each other but somehow they kind of seem to keep kind of moving and the system keeps adapting and this this sense which i've certainly experienced in in the corporate world and in it in running an organization that that you know you have to stay kind of flexid and fluid and adaptable um, i mean one thing that i really came across with for me was their their fun their humor i mean i found myself thinking god i'd really like to go and work for cool <laughs> um, does that mean you know, are you are you quitting dwg to go work for cook is that your resignation i, I, I don't know but sometimes i kind of think maybe <laughs> maybe i'd like to do something like i don't know just be run a post office or 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 kind of just i just I, anyway no i'm not going to go and work for cook and i'm sure i've got no skills that cook would want <laughs> would find useful um but the the other point was that was this idea and i think it particularly came from rosie of of the idea of 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 leverage and change and and i my sense that there's there's 1200 people in cook it's not a small organization it's not a large organization but it's an influential organization influential company and that actually they demonstrate that you can tick the profit, the uh, connection, the relationships, the value, the good sourcing, the the ecology. All of these, all of these boxes, if you like, can be can be ticked and be part of it, and you can thrive as an organisation. And and you can't argue that that work against the fact that works, and and. If, if it can work there and it works in many other organisations, it really does give us a model for a sort of level of social and economic change. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree. I think we, I mean, what, what we want is kind of systemic change, ultimately. So the When do we work, want that? We, we want, want it we want now. now we? we want it now, yeah. obviously. Um <laughs> For that to happen, for work to become something that is more equitable, more meaningful, that is in sync with the environment and with each other, that's that takes everyone. And so to see what they're doing at Cook is is really inspirational. It, it is. And I think, you know, it's a great example of what we want to have on the podcast, yeah. in the podcast, which are, which are examples of organisations who are 
uh, manifesting the new story of work for a living age. I mean, that everybody's on a journey. Nobody's perfect. And it's not about achieving a level uh, of perfection. It's but but this is an example that I think significantly larger organizations can learn from, be inspired by. And and I really look forward to having other, you know, smaller, larger organizations and to bring some of these stories to life. In a way, when they were saying that they, you know, sort of wished us good look, in, you know, with the book and so on, I thought, well, actually, we're all just part of the same movement of of change uh, in the world of work, aren't we? Yeah, we're all connected. And we all, if the more that we can move together in roughly the same direction, the quicker change will happen. Um, mm. But yeah, they're a fantastic story. I'm so pleased we had them on. Yeah, so let's... Let's go. Here we go with Rosie Brown, co-CEO of Cook, and James Rutter, Chief Creative Officer for Cook. So, so just to start off, um, and, and I was reflecting on the fact that one of the first things that I and my partner did when lockdown one hit in March 2020 was stock up on cook meals. Did everybody, did lots of people do that in March 2020? And and how did you cope? So, um, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happened in March 2020. So demand for frozen food went absolutely through the roof and our shops and our warehouses were left um, with no warning, kind of absolutely, you know, up to the gunnels with it. And uh you know, the heartbreaking thing is at that time we had endless sort of elderly customers on the phone who couldn't leave their house, too scared to leave their house, supermarkets, um, couldn't get slots with them. So, you know, desperate for food. So it was it was quite a hard time for the customer care team who were on the receiving end of all of this. So we ended up setting up a list for vulnerable customers and things. But for, for our guys on the front line, you know, who suddenly found themselves front and centre of a global pandemic and they had definitely not signed up to be key workers you know they'd signed up most of them for a nice part-time job in a nice local community shop but everyone rose to the challenge absolutely magnificently you know and it, it was it's incredible what they achieved incredible what they achieved um, as people filled their freezers and then I suppose shortly afterwards we we then went into counter service. We agreed that we would stay trading throughout the pandemic. We would we created counters that went into all of the shops. So the business changed in the space of six weeks beyond all recognition. And and the shop teams were incredible, as were the warehouse teams who suddenly had to cope with incredible volumes. Um so yeah, it was a hugely busy, busy, sort of scary time actually. Yeah, and, and that's that, that's great. I mean, just just stepping back, and we've already been talking about, if you like, some of the. I mean, you, you. I think we all know that when we're put under pressure, sometimes we discover uh, kind of who we are, what we are, kind of. Um, and and where did what's the cook story? How did it start? And was the were these principles if you like the ua and and culture that you experienced when when the first lockdown happened early in 2020 were, were they there from the beginning uh, in the organization how, how did that happen I, I mean the simple fact is i think we were 
we were able to do it because genuinely of the, of the kind of the culture that we'd we'd almost you know spent the last 10 15 years kind of building and growing i think everybody just almost without question just got to it and and i think there were you know we we were very open with people and, and we gave people the option that if they didn't feel safe they didn't feel comfortable they didn't need to come to work but I think I'm right in saying, Rosie, you know, pretty much without exception, there were a handful for good reason, health reasons needed to shield. But everybody just got on with it and people could see that, that there was a real need for our food, um, for our kind of connection, for, for the sense in which we could give people something at a, at a time of crisis that they weren't going to get elsewhere. And so, so it was genuinely just like, without question, everybody just got to it. And that was from kind of doing daily crisis meetings with, with a group of people um, to, to, as Razor said, the shop shifting around to counters. So we had a kind of a, a two year, three year, two and a half year plan to roll out home delivery across all our shops. And we did it in two months. Um, we had a, a new kitchen, which, you know, for our good fortune, had literally been kind of opened, I think, a few weeks before the pandemic hit. And that kitchen, which was meant to take, you know, six months to get up to to kind of full speed, as it were, just had to hit the ground running. We had to hire hundreds of people. We had to find temporary. I mean, it was just incredible that what everybody did. And it was it was a real, I think when everybody kind of stands back and, and looks at it in hindsight, I think they will just see the real power of a of collective will, I think, and of people in, Rosie loves the word community. So I'd say uh, people in a genuine workplace community um, just getting on with it without questions asked because everybody else is. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that. I think people love to help people and people could see that they were helping people by being open and they were getting incredible feedback from customers, um, which helped to spur them on. But I also think from a company perspective, we talk about a bank of goodwill and our bank of goodwill was high. We'd invested a lot in our teams and our culture over many, many years. So when actually something really needed happening and pulling together, there were sort of trusted leaders at every level in the business. You know, the bank of goodwill was high. There was really clear communications. And as James said, you know, people went with it. But I think it was the, the fact that everyone felt they were able to contribute and help um, by providing food for people who needed it. That was the clincher, probably. Yeah. And trust, actually, as a as a trust. There's a sense in which, you know, trust of each other, trust of, trust of a leadership team that generally people believe is doing the best, you know, for, for them and for customers. So I definitely think it was a, as a, was a period during which, you know, trust was almost what everybody needed. Trust in each other and get on with it. I love that. And I love how you've tied it back to roots and to relationships. And that word relationships feels like it means so much for the organization and the fact that you say the roots live in that that particular relationship but actually it feels like it flows through who you are today and one of the things that we wrote about was you know uh, an apple for example has its own purpose but it also has a purpose in its wider ecosystem and for us that's what a, an organization is as well it has its purpose to survive but also in wider its wider ecosystem of work and it'll be great to hear what relationships mean for you in that sense um, and the various different relationships that exist for Cook. Wow. Gosh. So relationships is almost like, yeah, our specialist subject. As, as we've kind of 
you know, over the years come to kind of define and, and think of our, of our kind of purpose in the context of nourishing relationships. And I think what we've, what we've come to understand is that ultimately kind of everything at core is at base root is, is about relationships in business or in any kind of human organization. And we like to complicate it and dress it up in lots of fancy terms and, and layers and all this kind of stuff. But, but when we're talking about any kind of organization and we're talking about it's kind of people coming to, together to do something that they couldn't do on their own. And I think that idea that really it's relationships that enable us to thrive, it's relationships that bring us um, business success, it's, it's relationships that bring us fulfillment, be it that at home or at work. It's something that particularly, I guess, in the last 10 years, we've, we've really started to explore and, and try and figure out how we can can really seek, as we say, to nourish that both within Cook, but also in the in the wider world in terms of be that with our customers, be it with our suppliers, you know, really focusing on how we can have um, really strong reciprocal relationships with them, which can, which are going to mean we both flourish. Clearly then with, with the community more broadly, be that around our shops or around our kitchens here in Kent or down in Somerset. So, so when we think of relationships, we just think that's at the very heart of Cook. And I think one, one kind of bit of I guess um, one story that gave us some real, real impetus originally was actually the Harvard Grant study, which I, I don't know if you're aware of, um, but it's the longest, uh, the longest running kind of um, study of human happiness in history. And it started, I think, in 1938 with this this group of Harvard uh, freshmen who all agreed to fill out a survey every year about their life and well-being. And this literally continued. It's still going today. I think there might be literally a handful of these guys left. Every year they've been filling out this survey. There's a brilliant TED talk about it, and and you know the the finding though from from that whole like 70 years of, of study of lives was kind of summed up in one sentence. So it, that you know fulfilment and happiness through a lifetime simply comes from relationships, and we just took that as as geez, this is what it's all about, and how can we really. Um, enable everybody's relationships at Cook to really be the bedrock of not only successful business, but also real thriving life, personal lives, collective lives together. So, so really, we've been running with that, I think, the last 10 years, pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, I think the inspiration for Cook came from Ed and I's mum. Uh, my mum was a really great cook. Ed's, and Ed's great your aunt. brother? My, Ed's my brother. Yeah. So, um our mum was a really good cook, and when she was raising a family in the 19, kind of 70s and 80s, she was a busy working woman, and she cooked for the freezer, uh, big batches. And it was Ed's idea when he was 25 or so that, that he thought, well, I can create a business doing that, um, making great quality homemade meals for the freezer. And so sort of that's what he did, but he couldn't cook. So Ed went off and found Dale, who was a brilliant cook. And I think really the roots of cook are in their relationships. So... The two of them are chalk and cheese. You know, Ed's a sort of public schoolboy who was 25. Dale was a good 15 years older, who'd had a really tough upbringing in the East End of London. And on paper, there's not very much to connect them, but they are both uh, incredibly big-hearted people, and they're fun people, and they're relational people. And I think, sort of, so the roots of Cook, you know, when you're talking about your nature, I think, you know, if I had to pick out three things that guided us through are the strong roots uh, that lay in their relationship um, and also their big hearts both always meant cook had a purpose that was much much bigger than making money it was always 
in relationships and doing doing what you can and doing good. So I think sort of stepping back, it was really the roots of their relationship that's enabled Cook to flourish. Um, and I had another sort of reflection as I was thinking about it and reading your book, actually, because they founded Cook in 1997 and in 2000, there was a merger with my parents' business, which was the Handmade Cake Company. And eventually that business got sold in order to fund Cook. And actually you talk about regeneration and renewal. Uh, and in some ways, Cook is the ultimate kind of regeneration and renewal of, of, of a generation's business before, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, it rumbles on. No, I mean, one of the one of the things that strikes me listening to both of you talking is is the language you're using about community, goodwill, relationships, uh, well-being, emotion, and, and and it also makes me think that it's it's not just that some of the things that are happening are also about the way that you structured the organisation, and I'd really love to know, Rosie, you're the co-CEO of Cook, so. How did you come to have two CEOs? And my sort of follow-up to that is that if I think about the machine age, the industrial age, I think the idea of having two CEOs would have been considered at least strange or even sort of impossible. So what's the what's the thinking behind the two CEOs and, and what do you each do? That's a great question. <laughs> Um, so like most things at Cook, I think the, um, the co-CEO route happened pretty organically. I don't think there was huge rhyme or reason. It felt like the right thing to do. Ed has always enjoyed working in partnership with people, be it Dale. He worked with in partnership with my brother James running the business for a few years. Um, it's been me for the sort of last decade. And I think we're completely aligned on values and we're completely aligned on our ambition for this business and what it can do. So that's a really good starting point. Um, and I suppose in terms of what we do, I don't think we've ever sat down and I don't think it's ever been really clearly defined or clear cut. I think Ed as the founder leader has unique insight into the business and where we should head commercially. And he's got that entrepreneurial restlessness and, and, and what we call healthy paranoia about the competition and nothing's ever right or good enough and we've got to go faster. And, you know, that's that's a good energy to have in a business. I like to think I sort of bring a semblance of structure and organisation and culture and that kind of thing. So between us, I think it creates a sort of healthy tension about a pace of growth. So you know, you've got one co-CEO always wanting to go a bit faster and and you've got one who's always wanting to make sure everyone in the company is thriving at the same time. It's a bit like kind of repotting the plant. You know, you, you have to keep repotting the plant and fertilising it as well as expecting it to grow. So it's just making sure we've got all those foundations uh, in place. But between us, it seems to work quite well, I think. And um, yeah, I don't know, you'd have to ask James. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it's happened pretty organically. And as I say, it felt like the right thing to do. And we have very different strengths, but we're completely aligned on the important things. Have you had any problems in having two uh, a co-CEOs? I, I think probably where the challenge comes is is less between us and more for the leadership team. So I think sometimes people feel like they have two bosses and especially if one boss is going, go faster, go faster, and one boss is, is hassling them about the org chart, I think that can be confusing. 
So I think that's where, you know, we're always having to be mindful of, you know, let's try and meet together wherever possible, where there's important business conversations to be had. Um, so we don't leave, I suppose, the people we're trying to serve feeling like confused or pulled in different directions. So I think if there's been a challenge of it, I, I would think that has been, it's been the leadership team that's borne the brunt of that at times. I love that idea of creative tension between the two of you and that balancing out of each other that you sound like it sounds like you have. Um, it's so important to have that diversity for, for creativity and innovation. And James, I wonder how does that bleed into the work that you do as kind of chief creative officer and, and the things that you try to achieve for Cook? I see my role and, and kind of reason it exists, which is which is a bit of an odd one, really, in a, in a business like ours in some respects, as as being you know one eye faces inwards and another eye and the other one faces outwards, as it were. So, so kind of half my time is all about how how can we make sure people at Cook are kind of genuinely living our values and our purpose and and you know really helping us build this vibrant, rich culture. And the other half is, is really looking outside at, at customers and, and making sure that we um, not only, you know, successfully communicate what we do and, and the kind of problems we can solve for them in terms of food and home cooking and so so on and so forth, but also that they understand, you know, why cook matters in the world, that, that it's not just about the delicious frozen lasagna, that actually um, is some, about something a bit bigger and more important. And so that's kind of I think what my what my kind of role is is, is trying to juggle those two balls, as it were. And um, I mean, because again, uh, co CEO, that's very unusual. Chief Creative Officer of uh, a company like Cook, um, Frozen Meals. Um, that's the sort of title I'd more associate with an advertising agency. Um, and, and and I'm really intrigued how that how that came about. Did you did you come up with the title? James, or, or was there a previous chief creative officer, and you're the you're the, the latest in a long line of chief creative officers? Uh, no, I'm the, I'm the first, <laughs> and Rose will probably say I'll be the last as well. I think I think my recollection is actually the, the title came up on a car journey. I can't remember where we we're going, but I think it came up on a car journey somewhere. It's like, oh, no, what about that? So it was, it was as Rosie says, these things tend to be uh, quite organic in Cook. Um, and and it's and I guess it's my sense has always been that that as a as a company as a as a community as a collective we should be striving for creativity across everything we do and because we're this quite unusual beast and that we're kind of vertically integrated you know we we make our own food in our kitchens we've got the supply chain we look after we have our own logistics we've got our shops obviously. Um, with this incredibly kind of diverse range, not only of functions and but of people as well, and I think seeking to enable all those people to bring creativity to their roles and their lives is is really important. And I think you know that can be really challenging when you're thinking about some of our our kitchen teams who have pretty formulaic jobs in some respects. So, so I think not losing sight of the fact that actually just because a job job may seem to be pretty formulaic and repetitive it doesn't mean that that person can't somehow have both a sense of creativity 
and a sense of purpose in their work. And I think those two things together is, is really what we strive for. I'm not saying we get there all the time, absolutely, but I think having that ambition for everybody across, across this incredibly kind of diverse business is, is a great thing to have. Yeah, and what's, what's sort of come, coming across to me, and I mean, when we were writing The Nature of Work and this idea of, of using nature partly as a metaphor, but partly almost as a, as a teacher or as, a, as, a, as an educator for us in how we could live and how we could work. Um, and you talk about um, this natural process. It's, it's not something, if you like, necessarily, uh, it's not the product of a spreadsheet. It's got an organic, natural, evolving, and, and clearly listening to both of you, a lot of fun. And I think these are so much aspects of of the natural world. They they just feel so reflective of it, um, and it really is. Um, it's it's actually I don't know what you think, Shim, but it's it's really. I, I, I'm having this sort of strange feeling that we wrote a book that took us two years, and and now listening to to Rosie and James talk about how they run the the company it's it's quite sort of moving and quite a visceral experience yes it is and i loved what you said james about that sense of creativity and purpose and trying to bring that to people's day-to-day i think so much of how people have often experienced work and still experience work today is that drudge of the nine to five and clocking in and clocking out and the idea that you can have that sense of creativity and purpose regardless of what you do as long as the environment is nurturing enough and the people are nurturing enough and nourish you back to that word nourishment which is so great in this context I think it goes to the heart of of meaningful work and the good that an organization can really do if it looks beyond just its bottom line which kind of takes me to the question about your B Corp status, because it's fascinating. And it'll be great to hear more about what that means for you guys. So a B Corporation is um, at its most sort of base level, the sort of highest standard of ethical certification, where you become completely accountable for your social and environmental performance. Uh, It's also a community of like-minded businesses who are really pushing forward um, the progressive end of business who want believe that business can and should be a force for good in society. So it's a hugely inspiring movement. I think the, the word movement is overused today, but I think the B Corp movement is a real movement. I, I remember back in 2013, we were sat uh, in the top floor of a London office thinking about how we could grow a B Corp movement in the UK, and there were five businesses in the room. And only a couple of weeks ago, that crossed the barrier to 500. So um, Cook was a UK founding B Corp, and I'm really proud of of that. And so it's a really important part of our lives here at Cook, Um, but a movement we believe, you know, hugely in. And in terms of the B Corp's, you know, status itself, I suppose it does a few things for us. It's It's like having a critical friend. So uh, it tells us what we're not so good at. So every three years we have to complete this certification. And uh, there are all sorts of things on this certification that we haven't even thought of. And we're like, oh, don't we need to look at that? Or, uh, you know, areas we thought we were doing better than we were at. So 
three years ago, our environmental score was not as good as we'd want it to be and not one we were desperately proud of. And so the last three years, we've been working incredibly hard on that. And uh, our environmental um, impact has, has greatly kind of uh, improved as a result of of doing that assessment actually and having to go through all of those difficult questions. So it's a critical friend. It's a framework that helps us improve. Uh, for me, the bit I love most is the fact it's a community of like-minded businesses all pushing in the same direction. You know, great changes in society can't can't happen by one uh, company in Sittingbourne Estate, you know, Sittingbourne Industrial Estate waving a flag. But it can if we join with 500 other businesses also waving their flag. And if we can turn that 500 into 5,000, you know, you've changed the nature of business. And and so you know, the B Corporation is hugely important to us. So, um, well, my, one of my one of my recent reflections on it was that, as Rosie said, you know, we, we were one of the first in the UK and a founding member of the B Corp community over here. And since since then, many of our, I guess you might say, rivals have become B Corp. And on the one hand, you think, well, isn't that a bit crap? <laughs> they're, they're just uh, copying what you do. Um, but, but actually, way back when we first signed up to be a B Corp, I remember one of the founders saying, or oh, they used to have this, this rather kind of uh, cheesy American saying uh, around, imagine a world where, where companies are competing to be uh, the best for the world, not the best in the world. And definitely, I think what's happened since we are quite competitive people, you know, and the fact that we've got people doing not dissimilar things to us who are now B Corps means we're actually genuinely competing with them to have the greatest possible positive impact. We're not, you know, we're not really competing about money or profit or whatever, or, you know, you look at it, but, you know, we really care if we're, if we're not the most impactful business in the UK. And I, I love that sense of harnessing that, that inner competitive instinct that people in business have and, and for the greater good, as it were, really competing around how can you have a great environmental impact? How can you really prove that your social impact is, is way beyond your competitors? You know, those are the best things to compete for, surely. Yeah, and that's such a great um, story. In fact, I was talking, and it really reminds me, I was talking to uh, Abigail Wilmore, who is the chief people officer at Stella McCartney, the, the fashion brand. And, and like you, Rosie, she's going to be part of the festival that we've got in, in London in September, the Nature of Work Festival. And she said very much the same thing. She said the Stella McCartney and Stella McCartney herself has been really at the forefront of um, environmental, ecological improvements in fashion. And now quite a lot of other smaller fashion brands are, you know, showing exactly the same characteristics and, and it's like how can we stay ahead how can we stay innovative and as you say James it's really interesting to feel like there's this sort of healthy competition to do good in the world and and and, and that reminds me a little bit of sport the idea of sort of teams you know trying to improve in order not to kind of destroy but to actually enhance their own performance and, and their yeah, own I, th I, think I love that you brought in sport and competition there Paul uh, after the Super League fiasco <laughs> so yeah, yeah. fantastic yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I, was, I was just going to add that one of the things that again that I think is brilliant about the B Corp movement and the assessment is and there's always this question what does the B stand for and to be honest it doesn't really stand for anything but um, 
I thought it. I thought it stood for better. It really doesn't. It doesn't officially stand for anything. I mean, in, in America, you have the B stands for they have benefit corporations. That's a legal status in the states. Um, yeah, there's no official kind of uh, word that the B stands for. But I would say it kind of stands for no bullshit because I think what you have to do is, if you're a B corp, you have to do the assessment, and your results have to be completely transparent. And and as you say, we're now in a world where people are competing a little bit over trying to be the most good or whatever you want to say. And there is that sense of greenwash. There is that sense of how can anybody really trust what people say. And the beauty of the B Corp assessment is you go to the website, you look at what Cook scored. You know, you can see if we're living up to our words. And I think that sense of real transparency, real honesty is is fundamental. And as business tries to to, to kind of, uh, as you might say, to kind of regenerate itself as a more positive social kind of um, enterprise, then it's got to have that sense of honesty, of, of real no bullshit, of, you, you know, deeds, not words is another little phrase we love here. And I think that's really what it's all about. Deeds, not words. Just um, changing tack a little bit. Um, I'm really interested just to know how tastes are changing and are they connected in any way to, I don't know, changing demographics Um and, and is it reflective of, of cha- I mean, I've had two weeks of um, vegan eating while two of our daughters were home, which I really enjoyed. Um, and, and I'm just interested in, in whether, as you notice the way people's um, tastes are changing, how are they changing? Um, is it something to do with demographics? Is, is it to do with, I suppose, social change in a way? It's a really difficult one because tastes... Um, tastes are moving on but tastes are staying the same at the same time Um, I'll never forget um, our COO who was uh, at Pret-a-Manger for a while and he said you know his his 10 best-selling sandwiches were the same 10 best-selling sandwiches as they were 10 years ago and they will be the same 10 best-selling sandwiches as they will be in 10 years so there's definitely an element of that and we have that as well in our top 20, 20 products not a whole lot changes that said, veggie and vegan is on the rise. And they, pre-pandemic, certainly they were our fastest growing trends in the business. And I certainly think people are thinking more and more about sustainability. And we're expecting that to keep on growing. So we're really investing in those sort of categories. Uh, we're also launching a sort of new range of whole bowls um, in line with a market that's more concerned with nutrition. So I think what we put into our bodies, people are you know really waking up to. So those trends all exist. And we sell a lot of lasagna and chicken ham and meat pie. So, so it's a sort of, it's everything's changes, but everything stays the same at the same time. So, um, but yeah, veggie and vegan are definitely on the rise, and we welcome that. And you know, one of our company goals is to increase our our mix that we are selling less meat and we are selling more veggie and vegan in line with with because we think that's the right thing to do. That's so interesting, um, and it's the way that things are cyclical as well. Um, so just reflecting some of the words that we've used, like Paul said, we've spoken about relationships, roots, purpose, diversity, regeneration. Um, and I was looking down the list of the types of work that you guys do outside of your core business. So things like the the Dream Academy, the Raw Talent Programme, where you work with people who have been in prison to help them find jobs and recruitment. There's so much there that feels like it breathes life into the idea of a living organisation. Um and I just wondered what some of those nature of work elements really meant to you. 
Um, I know we mentioned regeneration relationships, but there are others like life cycle. Do any of those particularly resonate with you other than, obviously we've spoken about relationships, but were there any others that really feel like they're brought to life inside of Cook? Gosh. Well, well, Rosie went through and ticked off pretty much all of them, didn't you, Rosie? I think. <laughs> so, so I have to say, I absolutely loved your book. Um, I'm a total com- uh, company culture nerd, and I've read lots of company culture books, and I loved it. It was really beautiful. I loved the section at the end, um, questions to ask yourself, and I just thought it was really a brilliant book. So thank you for that. I just want to say, I didn't set that up as a, as a sell, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, Rosie. Yeah. But, well, there was just there was loads, and there was just loads that really felt uh, very, very aligned to what we're doing. So, I re- I really related to your sort of life cycle piece about companies as living structures, and you know, James will tell you I'm pretty obsessed with org charts, and our org charts never stay the same in Cook. So people are always moving, you know, people are growing, and you have to grow with them, and. It's not just about what the company needs, it's about what the person needs. And if you can match the two of those things, that's when you get kind of winning structures. But it's a work in progress. So at any point in time, I'll have, you know, three three or four teams that I'm looking at that I'm thinking it's not quite right and it needs to evolve as the organisation's evolving or as the people in the team are evolving. So I really love that kind of life cycle thing. And I think, you know, I've talked in the past about we have... Um, we have periods in Cook where you have to shed, you know, where a snake sheds its skin so it can kind of move on and grow. And it sometimes feels like that. We, we do that with the structure. We sort of have to all move on and up and shed the skin and on we go. Um, so that really resonated for me. I love that. Um, James, I don't know if you want to talk about raw talent and, and diversity, because that's just that has breathed enormous life into the kitchens. Yeah, absolutely. And before I do that, I was because I, I, I've got your book in front of me here. So I was just flicking through as Rosie was talking. And I've got to the page with the murmuration on it. And so I've got to yes. tell you because you might like this. So we we did a human murmuration. Uh, we, we, we do an event. Um, or we started doing an event a couple of years back called uh, the Culture Collective. And this is this was for all of you, for one of a better word, for all, for all our middle managers. So basically people who were leading a team of any kind from right across the business. And we got them all together for 36 hours, um, really to talk culture because, I th- and it came from Rosie kind of, and I can't remember who he had a conversation with, but it was it was this idea that actually, you know, as companies grow, um, the bit that often gets left behind, it's not the people at the top who kind of lose the vision or the sense of purpose or the sense of mission. It's often not the people right on the front line who lose that either. It's often the people in the middle who kind of feel a little bit lost. They don't quite have that real sense of engagement with, with the culture. So so the Culture Collective was our kind of our potential remedy for that, to get all these people together and really give them kind of an immersive experience. Yeah, so so we did a, a human murmuration, which was, was basically a load of people in a room and randomly you get people to do things and you have to just copy the person who you catch sight of out of the corner of your eye. And so you end up with, much like a murmuration of starlings, you end up with these little waves going around the room of hands in the air, people jumping up, people crouching down. It's, it's very funny. It's just a bit of fun. But I thought you might like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Um, and then raw, ta- I mean, yeah, raw talent is, is just an amazing thing. Um, and, and so, as you say, it's this program we've run for seven years now. And it, it's 
it's for anybody who's who's got real obstacles to employment, and that's sometimes you know originally it's people coming out of um, of prison or off the back of homelessness. Often there might be some addiction in the background or some mental health challenges. Um, but it's anybody who who would normally struggle to get a job, but it's got that real desire and longing to, if you like, get back into mainstream society, but often doesn't quite know where to start. And so over seven years, we've, we've now recently just gone through 100 people who've been through that program. And, and it is the thing I would say that I'm least involved with and most proud of at Cook, if that makes sense, because because I literally touch it very, very little. But every time I do, it just blows me away because you see the real impact of a good job amongst people who do care for you and what that can do to a life and not just an individual's life, but the life of their family, the people surrounding them, the people connected to them. And the way that our teams internally really embrace that. And, and you know, we talked about a bit about purpose earlier. And what I always like to say is, you know, brands or businesses don't have purpose. People do. And you've got to, therefore, give your people the opportunity to really witness their impact and see their purpose and feel their purpose up close. And when you see how um, team leaders or colleagues in the kitchen really take care of somebody who might be a raw talent and have really become invested in their future and the outcome that they have in their life. It's, it's just incredibly moving. And, and the stories from that are, are, just, are just kind of um, mind-blowing. One, one of our, our first ever raw talents, a guy called John, he came to the kitchen after years spent, spent in prison. Um, you know, he'd been homeless, struggling with addiction, had a really checkered history. And he was working with us for a couple of months and then one of our kitchen team leaders kind of pulled aside uh, one of our people team and said, uh, that guy we've got um, from Raw Talent, I know him. And it turned out that actually in their past, kind of growing up as teenagers, he had he'd been kind of a victim of violence at the hands of John and had put him in hospital for a long period um, and he'd recognised him. And that was a real, I think, almost pivotal point for the whole program because we had a situation where, you know, we've got a guy we were trying to help get back on his feet and we've got somebody else who'd been his, gen you know, victim of crime. And what should we do about it? And through, I guess, this, this is really this idea of relation, relationships, of forgiveness, of, of people, I guess, caring for each other, coming to the front through the work of the people team, of their team leaders, they kind of got these guys to sit down and talk together and the one who had been a victim was able to understand and forgive John for his actions in the past and John was able to to really you know say how sorry he was say he how he'd changed as a person and it was just such a for the for the culture that was such an amazing thing um and and so so John's still with us you know so seven years on he now helps mentor people on the raw talent program and actually, the, the other guys now, funnily enough, he, he's moved on um, and gone to actually to work in the prison service. So, it, but it just shows how, how through us taking a bit of a chance on people, and but then trusting everybody in the community to get together and really help and care for other people to get them back on their feet. Not only does it generally mend lives, but it gives people that real sense that the work they do day in, day out, is having a real impact and that they do have a purpose and they can see that purpose um, being lived in the world. Yeah, and, and one of the um, 
uh, kind of big questions that we, we have at the beginning of the book is is on this subject of purpose. And one of the things that we've noticed since the book came out was that purpose is one of the words, the topics that, that people seem to have really engaged with an awful lot. And and I think you've expressed it, James, in what you've been saying, but about this idea of true purpose. But I mean, I suppose what I want to ask is what what is the what is the purpose of Cook? What is, what is the deepest purpose of Cook? Maybe for you, Rosie. So for me, the deepest purpose of Cook is about uh, relationships. So we talk about nourishing relationships, but. Um, we live in a world of lots of lots of broken relationships um, between people, lots of social isolation, and um, the food system is broken, our workplaces are often broken, um, we're forgetting how to eat together, we're forgetting how to disagree politely. Um, so I think our deepest purpose as a business is to create and role model a business that plays a, a healing role in some of those fractures uh, and creates a more relational world. That's fantastic. And, and one of the things that's occurring to me and I put down was that is that, that one of the brilliant things I think about um, companies, organizations is that they have the capacity to actualize visions. So, as you say, by by providing a, a structure, work, meaningful, meaningful labor and and so on and i wonder you know if i think of timsons the, the the shoe repair key company and what they've done over the years and we we talk in the book about lever brothers the uh, you know cadbury's the the organizations at the beginning of the last century that you know created community for people created uh, schools residential and it feels that it feels like the world of work so much has been so broken by this narrow fixation on, I mean, you know, Shim and I are avoiding talking about the European Super League <laughs> and, 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 and how awful it was. But it, but it seems to be the Christ. I think the reason why people in this country have been and, and around have just been outraged by it is that it's just the kind of definition of greed taken to its almost worst level. And and I, I just kind of feel like what we're talking about here is the the desire to reclaim work organisations and, and and activity in in any industry as a, as a, as something that could be a force for for good. That's just me kind of. It's not really a question, but I don't know if it <laughs> provokes any any responses. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you should mention Timpsons and Cadbury's because both of those companies have been enormous inspirations to what, what we're doing. And both have, you know, lit a light, I suppose, uh, in me and some of the work we do. And if Cook can then do that for other people, then our, our, our work is done. But, you know, from my perspective, I think businesses have become really, really brilliant at scaling their product and their profits um, and there's loads of advice and books and experts on that. But I still think the business world has an awful lot to learn uh, when it comes to scaling our working relationships and how we work together and creating healthy environments. So we know there's huge value in getting it right. We know it's what makes us happy. We know it's, it's uh, where people will thrive and do their best work. But, but for some reason, I don't think we've quite uh, cracked it yet. So, yeah, for me, for me, if businesses can learn how to scale relationships and relational cultures in a way that we've learned to scale 
you know, product and profits, then then we'll be rocking. I was say, I know you guys love words and language, um, and and so what what are two like the phrase company culture is a phrase we obviously we love, but also kind of the real Latin roots of those words, you know. So company comes from com meaning with and panis meaning bread. So your company is the people you sit down and break bread with. And I think we love that kind of deep root of the idea of a company not in profit, not in sales, not in some kind of financial metric, but in the idea of sharing food with people, really connecting with people. And then culture from, from cultus to care. So you, it's all about caring. So company culture is really all about how can you come together in a kind of community that cares for each other. And I think capturing that idea, like Rosie says, you know, being able to scale that idea is something that, that very few companies have, have so far successfully done. And, you know, we're, we're a tiddler in the grand scheme of things. Okay, we might have 1,500 people, but, you know, we are a tiddler. Um, but as we grow, I think, I think our kind of obligation is not to lose sight of that and to make sure we are always really caring for people and keeping that idea of kind of companis, you know, with bread, keeping that at the heart of what we are as a company and a business. That feels like such an inspirational moment to pause on um, and to start to wrap up on as well. Um, and just before we close, I want to ask you both a question I think we're probably going to ask all of our guests. But where in nature do you feel most at home? Maybe Rosie, you first and then James. Um, I have uh, two dogs who I adore and I'm a great big fan of a long dog walk. And I think there are a few business problems that can't be solved <laughs> by taking my dogs out into the field next door and doing a loop of the field. Uh, so for me, there's nothing like, yeah, taking the dogs out into nature, a couple of loops of the field and, and the world is all right with me. So that's my that's my nature dose. I'm so disappointed. I thought Rosie was going to say dancing naked in the rain. <sighs> I had all sorts. But I have teenage sons, and they might listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah, that too. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm lucky enough to live live in a kind of fairly rural part of the world, and so I go running every morning. And so just to run through, I live by a forest. I run through the forest early morning. The birds just waking up. It's a privilege. It's an amazing thing. That, that, that's great, and thank you for for um, uh, answering those those questions. I mean, I don't think Shim we could have had two more uh, perfect guests and a more perfect company for the for the first Nature of Work podcast. And I'd just like to ask, just before we close, any any final thoughts or uh, reflections or comments from you, uh, Rosie and and James. Um. Thank you very much for having us. It's been an absolute joy um, to talk to you. And I, you know, I genuinely love the book. It, it resonated enormously for me um, in terms of, you know, I do think companies are living organisms. Um, you know, the life cycles, the biodiversity, the relationships, the purpose, the health, the regeneration and renewal, all of it, the roots. So for me, it's kind of powerful stuff and inspiring to go back to that, actually. So, yeah. So thank you very much for having us. Yeah, I echo that. I just, I just think um, I would wish you genuine kind of good fortune in your voyage as you, as you kind of 
seek to spread this message around other businesses and with other people because as Rosie says it's so valuable and and what you're doing is is highlighting how how we all come from nature let's not forget it let's make sure we protect it look after it celebrate it and what we do in terms of our workplaces so um yes good voyage to you both great thank you and and on any good voyage there's there's lots of good company and so you know it's 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 organizations like yourselves it's it's like what we're hoping and trying to do within the digital workplace group in our own uh, you know we we're hoping to become a b corporation shift over to employee ownership as well and um i think you know you you said rosie that um uh, you know it's there are much larger organizations in the world but i think each of the organizations that's trying to work in the way that, that, that you are is is really uh, an indicator of where we're going and I think uh, that's the journey we're on so thank you so much and um, it's been wonderful to, to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. The Nature Work podcast is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading companies and public institutions to advance their digital workplaces. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.